Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. So over the next three weeks, we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about joy, which is characteristic. The theme of joy is characteristic for Paul. Something that he really, really feels deeply about. We're going to talk about partnership. The Greek word that he uses is koinonia. We'll talk about what partnership means. He talks a lot about giving. He talks a lot about, um, man, the single family of God that every Christian is a part of. And so we'll, we'll flesh out some of those themes. Uh, if, if, again, if you're not familiar with the book of Philippians, this is like your coffee, co- uh, coffee, cook, coffee cup book. Uh, in the Bible, uh, if, if how many how many of you have bumper bumper stickers? Any anybody have bumper stickers? A few of you have bumper stickers. Okay, man, if you if you're a bad driver and you have a bumper uh, sticker like Jesus for the people, just take that off, right? <laughs> but if you do like bumper stickers, drive well, and you're probably. Uh, one who likes Philippians. There's so many quotable verses in the book of Philippians, right? Coffee cup stuff or T-shirts, right? You, you like to put scriptures on your on your T-shirt and you you, you just live the dream, right? Whatever. Uh, but you have to live um, to live as Christ, right? Paul says to die is gain. You have one thing I do. Everyone say one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind, and I press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, he talks about my God. Everyone say my God. My God will supply all my needs according to his what? His riches in his glory in Christ Jesus. I love it. He talks about rejoice. And I think he uses the present participle and he goes, and again I say rejoice, right? Rejoice and let's double it up, right? And let's rejoice again. And so there's a lot of quotable verses that we're going to take a look at. So I'm excited about this. This is going to be an incre- incredible uh, sermon series that, uh, that will get done probably in 2024. Amen. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm ready. I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. So, uh, so we begin in verse uh, 1 of chapter 1. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, usually what we do in an expository series, we kind of go verse by verse. I'm going to kind of reverse it. I'm going to read chapter, excuse me, verse 1 and verse 2, and then I'm going to reverse that, start with uh, uh, verse 2, talk a little bit about that, and kind of move back into verse 1. But we'll start with verse 1. I know your, your brain is just like, what did he just say? Just go with it, okay? So verse 1, Paul and uh, Timothy, servants, uh, the Greek word that Paul uses is doulos. Everyone say doulos. Doulos of Christ Jesus. And you hear what, what Paul is doing? Uh, he's kind of digging at this culture of magnification uh, that he finds in, uh, um, in the city of uh, Philippi. Uh, he's also probably uh, using deliberate lampoon against uh, empire worship or emperor worship. In other words, Paul likes trash talk. Can I get an amen? All right. So he says, we're servants of Christ Jesus, and and I'll explain what that means here in a little bit. And then he moves forward a little bit, and he goes, to all the saints. How many saints do we have here today? Okay. Uh, If you're in Christ, go ahead and raise your hand. You are a saint, right? You probably lived like a heathen this week, but it doesn't matter. You're a saint, right? We'll talk about that over the next few weeks. But to all the saints in Christ Jesus, I love this. I love the logic here. Uh, that Paul, or the sequence that Paul kind of lays uh, in this sentence. He goes, so all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. We'll talk more about this over the next few weeks. And then we come to verse 2. Verse 2, Paul says, grace, everyone say grace. Grace to you 
and peace from God our Father. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I read that again? He says grace. How many of you like grace? Well, we love grace. Grace to you and peace or shalom. Shalom is everything in your life. Every aspect of your life is at rest. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, man, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you for uh, being with us today. I thank you for your presence. Holy Spirit, say what you want to say in the next few minutes. Do what you want to do. Lord, I thank you for your strength in my body to communicate your word. Lord, I thank you that uh, you are alive and you are running this country. And uh, you want to do something special. You want to speak to us today. You want to do something special in us. So we just say yes to you, Jesus. And we love you. And we are so thankful that the Cowboys are not playing today. I love you, Lord. And everyone said amen. No broken hearts today. Can I get an amen, Cowboy fans? No broken hearts. Not today. Um, I... I've been thinking through Philippians, and I, I, I realized that, as, as I just studied, Philippians is Jesus for the people in microcosm. And here we have grace, this, this thought. We're going to begin in verse 2. Paul, he, he, basically, he, he's introducing some thoughts. Before he introduces some thoughts, he greets them with grace and peace. Uh, in the ancient world, to, to, greet, to use grace and peace or shalom would have, would have been like a standard way to, to start a letter. What Paul is not doing is that. This isn't like a standard uh, way to, to start a letter or to greet uh, the church in Philippi. What Paul is doing is he's summarizing the entire experience of this church in Philippi, their entire experience with the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, if, you, if, if you're not familiar with the kingdom of Jesus today, uh, if you want more information on the kingdom of Jesus, uh, if maybe you have some concerns with the kingdom of Jesus, let me just say this from the outset. The kingdom of Jesus is filled with grace, and it's filled with shalom. This is what Jesus for the people is all about. Jesus for the people, let's just say in a nutshell, right? Jesus for the people in a nutshell is how there's no one in this world. There's no one in this universe, right? There's no one in this country that lies outside. doesn't matter what people say. doesn't matter the opinions that we find on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or all the radio talk show hosts, but there's no one in the range of life that lies outside of God's grace. There's no one that lies outside of hope. There's no one that lies outside of rescue. There's no one that lies outside of God's salvation. There's nothing in your life, and we've been talking about this for some time, that lies somehow outside of God's sovereign rule. Jesus is the king, whether you feel like it or not. Jesus is the king of the cosmos. He's not king wannabe. Can I get an amen to that? He's not president-elect, right? He's not king-in-waiting, right? He's, he's king now. And he's bringing creation, which is his project. He will bring it to its intended purpose or its intended goal. And so Jesus for the people is all about how there's no one in this room, there's no one in this city that lies outside of hope. No one. Not your neighbor, right? 
Not your Republican neighbor that you're really frustrated with. Not your Democrat neighbor that you're really frustrated with. Come on. Not that you think he's a psychopath, but he's probably not. You're probably using hyperbole in your head. You just don't like, you know, your neighbor, right? But it doesn't matter uh, uh, your preference for people. Uh, it doesn't matter your opinion of people. There's no one that just is, sits somehow outside the orbit of, of grace. And so I want to give you a backdrop before I talk just for a few moments. I'm not going to break things down a lot today. I'm not going to get overly academic today. Most of the time you don't want me to do that. Okay, I hear you, all right? Uh, but I want to share my heart. Can, can I share my heart with you? Um, Jesus for the people uh, is, is fleshed out in this church that we find in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, Mark, Mark Francie, he spoke last week. How many of you love Mark? Any great? Can you give it up for Mark? I don't think he's here this morning. Had a wonderful word um, straight out of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is our backdrop for this letter. Uh, Paul wrote this in the mid-50s, probably in the mid-40s. Paul is an urban uh, church planner. Pretend like he's an urban church planner. What Paul would do is he would go to urban centers. And so in Acts chapter 16, this is the founding of, and this is just like, to me, this is what our church is going to be like. I love this. Get ready for it. I believe capital over the next 25, 30. Come on. How many of you believe I can be here for 40 years, right? My wife and I, right? Over the next 40 years, um, I, I, I just, I, I have this sense that God is going to flesh out what we're talking about today in the life of our church as we plant campuses, as we reach people. So Paul in Acts chapter 16, he's about ready to, to found this church in Philippi. I'll give you more information about Philippi over the next few weeks. So he comes to this city, but he comes to this city. Actually, before he comes to this city, he has a dream. And in this dream, a Macedonian man shows up and says, we need your help. And so Paul wakes up from the dream. Uh, he's with his, like, traveling companions. You have Silas, you have Timothy, you have Dr. Luke. And so they all decide, okay, we need to go to Macedonia. So they go to Macedonia, which is in Greece, and they come to this place called Philippi. I just want to give you a quick demographic profile of Philippi. Philippi, outside of Rome, was probably one of the most important cities in the Mediterranean world. Not only was it one of the most important cities in the Mediterranean world, it was considered Roman miniature. The demographic analysis, can I give it to you, uh, is pretty, it's pretty stark. You had a few, you had a minority of people that were like called upper class, right? You had some Roman citizens, you had the aristocracy, uh, you had uh, different wealthy people that were a part of it. They were a mino minority that were a part of this upper class. But from there, you had this sharp verticality in the city. Uh, you didn't have a middle class. Most of the people lived on subsistence. So you had a large population within this city that lived on subsistence. And then you had one scholar says he believes that up to 50% of the people in Philippi were a part of the slave culture. So they were enslaved exploited. So we have this radical social mix or mixture uh, in this city, in this town. And so Paul, uh, by a dream, he's a good urban church planter, comes to this city. Uh, let me just say this really quick about church planting or campus planting. The most important thing about uh, planting a campus or a church 
is not the science behind planning a church. It's not the um, analytics. It's not the demographics. I think we need to be wise with how we reach people. Can I get an amen to that? Uh, we need to know how people uh, feel, how they think. We want to be culturally sensitive. That's really important. But that's not the most important thing. The science of planning a church or a campus is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the spirit of Jesus. And so Jesus shows up in Paul's dream and says, I don't, I, I don't want you to go to Asia. I want you to go to Macedonia. So they arrive in Philippi. What's interesting is that Paul comes to a riverside. Paul's practice, because he's um, an urban church planner, was to go to an urban center and to look for a synagogue. He'd go to a synagogue, and then he would teach. He would talk about the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, he would preach the hell out of people, right? Can I get an amen to that? Just want to make sure you're awake this morning. And so uh, he would teach and preach about Jesus. He would make announcements about the kingdom of God. Uh, and then people would be converted, and he would baptize. Well, uh, he comes to Philippi, and there's no, there's no synagogue. And just for perspective, a synagogue, in order for a synagogue to, uh, to be built, you had to have a quorum of 10 Jewish men. And so the fact that there was no synagogue in this city tells us that this is a very pagan city. Very pagan, doesn't want much to do with um, Jesus. The religious life we know is dominated by uh, the, the emperor cult and the magnification of the self. We'll talk about that uh, over the next few weeks. So Paul arrives in this city. Demographics are crazy. Uh, it's a thoroughly paganized culture. I'm sure Paul's thinking, God, are you crazy? You call me to this place, right? It's just like it's all over the place. It kind of feels like Boise downtown. Little eclectic, you got, you got vegans, you got hipsters, you got homeless, you got wealthy, you got Democrats, you got Republicans. It's like you have this incredibly mixed society downtown, and this is where Paul is at. So he goes to a riverside, and he sees this woman named Lydia, and Lydia's with her friends. Uh, Luke tells us that Lydia, she uh, is a God-fearer. Means, which means she was a worshiper of God, which essentially means that she had a familiarity with the Torah. Um, she loved God, but again, she's, she's not quite sure where she stands with, with Jesus. Uh, we also know, according to Luke, that she's a seller of purple goods. So she's a fashion mogul. Can I get an amen to that? So she has like her fashion empire. Um, we, we do know one scholar thinks that she might have been the most prominent woman in this city. She's a part of the, the upper class so she has her empire. She's making purple clothes, right, which signifies royalty. In the ancient, this ancient setting or this ancient world, um, that's, that's like Prada, right, it's, or something higher than Prada. So we have this fashion mogul. She's from Thyatira. I, I love the portrait here. I'm going to break down this portrait for you. She's a fashion mogul from Thyatira. Thyatira is in Asia. So she probably is, has Asian descent, She's from Thyatira, she's a fashion mogul, she's a part of the upper class, and she is a worshiper of God. Paul decides he just has a chance encounter, but we all know there's no chances in the kingdom of God. He comes to this river, and he sees uh, this group, of, uh, this group of, of people, mostly women, and uh, they're having a prayer meeting, and he starts talking to, that, to them about Jesus. Luke tells us, that Lydia's heart is then open, she's converted, she has a conversion experience, she's then baptized and then invites Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke back to 
her place. What's amazing about this, and I, I, I want you to hear my heart, I was reading this story about Lydia and a little old prayer meeting, and I was overwhelmed with, to me, it's, it's really the foundation, what, what I was overwhelmed with, is the foundation, I feel like, as we move forward, as we negotiate difficulties, as we negotiate trials and circumstances, good seasons and bad seasons, our foundation is going to be, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And our response is, never. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Nothing's impossible for God. We have an unspectacular little old prayer meeting down by the river with a couple vans, right? And we have a conversion experience. And I don't know if you know this, but Lydia is responsible for financing Paul's urban church planting movement. We know in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul the apostle one of the greatest thinkers and missionaries of all time, is, is having an honest moment. And he said that he was on the verge of despair. He was in Ephesus. He was in prison. If you, I don't know if you know this, but an ancient Roman prison was basically a death sentence. If you didn't have friends and family that could support you, uh, you would basically d- uh, die of starvation. Rome would not feed you. There was no food. There was no health care. You relied exclusively on your friends and your family members. Most likely when Paul said he was on the verge of despair, as he's talking to the church in, in Corinth, he's basically saying, I was starving to death in prison. And guess what? A church from Macedonia, probably led by Lydia, This fashion mogul that was down by the river having a prayer meeting had a chance encounter. Her heart was opened. She was converted and then baptized is now not only financing the greatest missionary of all time, she is rescuing Paul the Apostle. Lydia, in a paganized culture, down by a river, kind of just in an unspectacular setting, is transformed by Jesus. And God takes this woman and works through her to finance the greatest missionary movement of all time. Not only that, Lydia is used, and this church in Philippi is used to start one of the greatest movements in Europe itself. So let me say this. Do not underestimate Any encounter you have with anyone in this city, don't underestimate a coffee meeting with so-and-so. Don't underestimate, oh, it's just a prayer meeting in the back, right? Nothing really can happen. Don't don't ever underestimate what God can do on a Sunday morning. Please, when you go downtown tonight, don't underestimate. We might not get all our songs right. I might not get my syntax right, but that's okay. Don't underestimate, even if you don't think it's spectacular downtown, which it's going to be, but never underestimate what God can do in someone's life. Wow. So they go to Lydia's house, spend a couple days there. Paul then gets a vision. He's excited, starts going around the city, announcing Jesus, the kingdom of God, to everyone. And then many of you are familiar with the story. We have a, a young girl, she's Greek, 
I want you to look at this demographic profile. She's, she's enslaved. She's been, she's been exploited her whole life. She belongs to this massive slave culture. Uh, she's probably a part of this, some of the mystery cults. And she has what Luke tells us, a spirit of divination, right? She's psychologically damaged. I'm sure she doesn't even know where she's at, but she's following Paul around as he's preaching the good news of Jesus. And she's basically annoying Paul. And what she's saying is so distracting that Paul one day turns around to this little girl whose head is turning around and green stuff is coming out of her mouth, right? If you've seen Exorcist, which you shouldn't have, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? We'll pray over you after the service. Turns around and commands the spirit to come out of her. Um, many people, like, they're confused about what happened. This is not just a moment where she's set free from a demonic spirit experience or a de demonic spirit. Uh, this is a conversion story. Her life is turned right side up. She's a part of the poor class. Her whole life she's been exploited, psychologically damaged, filled with a spirit of divination. Life is just upside down. She's Greek. She's a little demoniac girl. And God changes her life. This is a portrait of Jesus for the people. No one, let me remind you, no one lies outside the range of God's love and hope. And then right after this story, we had a little demoniac girl throwing green stuff up, radically converted, baptized. Her owners, knowing that they've lost their profit, they've lost their business, go to the local magistrates. And uh, they create this mob-like environment. And the magistrates drag, have Paul and Silas dragged into the center. And they beat Paul and Silas. Then they send Paul and Silas to this Roman jail. Remember, Roman jails are horrifying places to be in. And uh, the magistrates turn to this Roman jailer. Now we have another little portrait. First we have Lydia. She's kind of the upper class from Thyatira. She's a fashion mogul. Now we have this little girl, a Greek former a demoniac um, who is part of this massive slave culture. Now we have this, this Roman jailer. This Roman jailer, let's pretend like he's a blue-collar guy, right? He goes home, he does his thing, work, goes home, drinks Michelob, watches the Chicago Bears, eats hot dogs, and goes back to work, right? Not much interested in philosophy, like he's just doing his job, right? He's kind of maybe today part of the middle class, though. He, you know, who knows where he stood in the, the social arrangement in Philippi, but let's just kind of go with it. But not only is he like a blue collar guy, what he does for a living is torture people. The local magistrate said, hey, I want you to keep these guys safe. What does he do? The text tells us that he put them, Paul and Silas, in the stocks. Stocks in this ancient setting is a torture device. So basically this Roman jailer is torturing Paul and Silas. What do Paul and Silas do? Again, you're familiar with this story. They, they just sing, they're singing hymns, Doing the Pentecostal two-step, singing a little hill song, right? Singing, my God is an awesome God. Can I get an amen to that, right? Doing whatever. And the prisoners are listening to them. Luke tells us that suddenly, everyone say suddenly. Suddenly this earthquake throws the doors open. All the prisoners stay in. The Roman jailer runs in thinking that everybody's escaped. He's going to lose his life. He sees Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas say, hey, don't sweat it. This is all God. Um, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And so this blue-collar guy, guess what? He opens his heart to Jesus. 
He has a conversion moment, and he's baptized. He goes back to his family and baptizes his whole family. Here we have Lydia from Thyatira, a fashion mogul. Rich, smart, brilliant. We have a little demoniac girl uh, who's very pagan, a part of this slave culture. And now we have this middle-class Roman jailer, soldier, who drinks a lot of Michelob, right, and eats a lot of meat. Can I get an amen to the meat? <laughs> so why are we talking about this, Chris? Well, this is, this is what the kingdom of Jesus looks like. Don't give me too many amens this morning. Kingdom of Jesus is not monochromatic. Kingdom of Jesus is not like one shade of, of class or color or profession. You, you, you see, let me just, I'm going to be really honest. Can I be honest with you this morning? Um, the American social, let me say social experiment is failing us. We're not more united as a people. As Americans, we are more divided in a polarized culture, right? We're, we're living by these, these uh, fabricated arrangements. We all have our preferences, and, and we live by those maybe demographic preferences. And the world is basically reinforcing this polarization that we find between left and right. And I'm just going to say this. The American social experiment can never give us what only Jesus and his kingdom can give us. When you submit your life to King Jesus, when we, when we have a conversion moment, we're brought into, and we're actually stitched together, or a part of this beautiful diversity of people, where wherein God changes and heals and rescues us, and we begin to reflect the love of God to our city. You see, the kingdom of Jesus is all about how God takes all these psychosocial, religious, ethnic arrangements and turns them upside down. In other words, you don't belong to the family of God because of your profession or because of your previous history or because of your ethnicity or, oh, you're an Oakland Raider fan, sorry, you can't be a part of what God's doing in, like in this world, right? You're not, you're not your measure of worth. Your belonging, being a part of God's family has nothing to do with anything that you've accomplished in your life. Has nothing to do with your sexual history. Has nothing to do with what you've done in the past. It has everything to do with the achievements of Jesus and his grace and his love. That's what the kingdom of Jesus is all about. That's what Jesus for the people is all about. But see, this gets messy. Can I talk like this? This beautiful portrait of, I mean, could you imagine? Like, there's no way, I'm sorry, the Republican Party or the Democrat Party could never orchestrate or choreograph a fashion mogul hanging with a former demoniac girl, hanging with a Roman torture jailer, right, at Block & Co. It ain't gonna happen. The Republican Party does not have what it takes 
to rescue the human heart. The Democratic Party does not have what it takes to rescue the human heart. Only Jesus and his kingdom can bring people together that come from this radical or radically different background and bring them together and heal their hearts. Here's the thing. If Jesus, and this is the logic, if Jesus is really the king of the world, wait for this, it's going to be really profound, then Jesus is really king of the world. Which means that Jesus is king over your grandma who prays every day. But he's not just king over your grandma. Jesus is, is also king over all the clean folk, but he's not just king over all the clean folk. It's funny, um, as Shane and I, when we grew up, it's funny, we're going back to St. Paul Baptist, and I just have all these old haunting memories. Um, but I remember we were in Royal Rangers, and we had this anthem. We would chant it every Wednesday night, and it went something like this. We won't smoke, we won't drink, we won't chew, and we won't go out with girls who do. Right? That was our, I'm 10. And like, why? And I'm looking at Shane, I'm like, he's like, bro, why are we even talking about this? I don't even know what that means, right? But if you're not careful, right, you, you, you do church stuff, you come to church, and you kind of get used to like clean, right? That God only uses the clean. God uses, only uses those who have never drank Michelob, right? Have never like done this or that, we start to categorize people and implicitly we start constructing these hierarchies in the church. Well, that person's clean and that person's unclean. That person's more saved. That person's less saved. And we, we start categorizing these people. Okay, God will use all the clean folk. You know, Chris and Shane who went through Royal Rangers never did anything really bad, right? I mean, I threw Shane through a wall, but other than that, was a pretty good kid. But if we're not careful, we just assume that Jesus is only king over those who have their life put together. And I believe in having your life put together. Come on. Don't drink yourself into a dehumanized state. Come on, take care of your body, right? But hey, Jesus is also clean. Or excuse me, Jesus is clean. It's been a long morning, guys. Jesus is king over the clean and the unclean. He's, over, he's, he's king over the Democrat and the Republican. He's king over the foster kid who's brokenhearted. Jesus is king over your neighborhood. Jesus is king over your city. Jesus is king over the president. Jesus is king over the racist. Jesus is king over the psychopath. Jesus is king. He's king. He's king. He's king. He's king. He's king. He's not just king on Sunday morning. He's king over all of life. Let me just say this really quick, and, and I'm going to get to uh, verse 1, and I'm spend just a few minutes talking about verse 2. You're like, hey, guys, we're talking about verse 2, right? Okay. I, this is important that we understand this, that moving forward as a church, we are going to, we're radically committed to seeing God take, take people and bring them together and heal their hearts, no matter who they are. And we have the radical belief that God can use anyone. 
And as a church, we're going to commit ourselves to that. So if you've been smoking your whole life, good news. There's good news for you. If you've been drinking yourself into oblivion, there's good news for you. If you're addicted to this substance, there's good news or whatever substance, there's good news for you. If you're clean or unclean, it doesn't matter because of grace. That grace will meet you where you're at. This is such a cliche, but grace will never leave you where you're at, right? And we believe in holiness, and we believe in reflecting the love of God back to our city through the framework of living a holy life. But first, our starting point as a church and the starting point of Jesus for the people is recognizing that Jesus is Lord over everything. So, I'm going to be honest with you, this is going to get messy. Next 10 years, 15 years, it's going to be one glorious mess. Why? Because I want you to get ready. Turn to your neighbor and say, get ready. I want you to get ready because God is going to bring all different kinds of people together for his glory. Some people you're not going to understand. That's stinking Democrat. How can he be a Christ follower, right? Or that Republican. Or let, let me just say this really quick. I think maybe some of us should stop glutting Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and radio talk show host. Can you watch it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to lose your mind. And it's okay maybe every now and then. Get your news. I get that. But why don't you get your information from God's word? Why don't you let God's word be your last word? And you allow God's word to give shape to how you think about all things political, all things family, all things right in, in whatever in your life. Let God's word bring definition to you. But if we're committed to being a Jesus for the people church, and if we're committed to being Jesus for the people in the Intermountain region, guess what? It's going to get messy. It's going to get messy. It's going to be difficult at times. We're not going to understand each other all the time. But if we're committed to being Jesus for the people, we got to be okay. We don't have to embrace it. We just be okay with difficult situations. It's funny, my wife and I, when we adopted our, our children and they started growing and they became sentient beings and they started thinking through stuff and rationalizing. They, uh, the boys in particular, um, really love permanent marker. And so I, I remember one day, I, I can't remember, this is kind of off the top of my head, coming home and the boys, it's going to my closet and I had some really nice shirts. Like some of you have asked like, why don't you dress well anymore? I'm a dad, <laughs> right? like you give up. Like you don't give up on life. You just give up on trying to, you know, dress, dress, you know, whatever, because your kids take permanent marker and graffiti all of your shirts. 
So I remember coming home and having shirts graffitied with permanent marker. Um, come on. We, I remember the first day that I brought Quincy home. I've shared this story before. He pooped all over me. I've had vomit all over my body, bodily fluids from my boys all over. We've had dirt. We've had a messy house. We clean it, and then within an hour, it's messy. It's like kids are messy. But I never want to go back to not having kids. I'm okay with the mess because I'm in love with my kids. You see, one, one pastor said, hey, um, no mess, you're not going to have a ministry. No mess, you will not have a mission. But Proverbs 14.4 says, uh, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but the abundance of crops come through the strength of an ox. I would rather have a messy, a beautiful, messy church of people being rescued, coming from all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds, being rescued by Jesus and having some mess than not having any of that. Come on, we're going back to the future. Come on, we're going back to the future. And back to the future simply means we're going to be Jesus for the people to our city and to our region, and to our world, and to everybody who wants to hear about the good news of Jesus. This is who we are. And we're going to be committed to loving people in astonishing ways. Astonishing ways. So how do we do this as we close? How, how, how do we become a Jesus for the people church? Well, in verse 1, we got there. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, this is Paul, says we're servants, doulos, of Christ Jesus. We're servants, we're slaves, in other words, in the original language, we're slaves of Christ Jesus. In a world that's dominated by stoicism, a world dominated by this world, this ancient world setting, dominated by this practice of magnifying oneself, to call yourself a slave would have been offensive. It's offensive today, but it would have been offensive in a setting where 50% of the population consisted of slaves. Why is Paul saying that he's a servant, a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus? I think the point is, and this is the key to becoming a Jesus for the people person, the point that Paul is making is that everybody is a servant to something or someone. We're all servants of something. You might not be a follower of Jesus here today, but you, you follow something or someone. It might be sex. It might be fame. It might be power. It might be violence. It might be war. It might be money. It might be I don't know what it might be, but we all serve something. And Paul said, okay, hey, the only way you can find fulfillment, the only way you can enter into a genuine human life is when you allow Jesus to, in a profound way, reverse your status and become a servant and a slave of King Jesus. Christ Jesus. See, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Can I get an amen? Some of you are like, oh my gosh. Christ simply means king. I'm a servant of King Jesus. Right? King. 
king of the world, king of the cosmos. Jeremiah 51 says that, man, it's through God that we've, that, that, that God built the cosmos, crafted the universe, the space-time continuum. It's Jesus. It's Jesus that is Lord over this creation project. And we are servants, Paul says, of Christ Jesus. We're not servants of something that's transient, something that will not fulfill something or someone that is essentially a cheap parody of Christ Jesus himself. We are slaves of King Jesus. And then he moves into the last part, the last clause of verse one, and then I wanna end. If we can get that scripture back up there for me really quick, guys. You guys are amazing. Can you give it up to our media team? Verse one, thank you. And then this is where I end. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. How do we become a Jesus for the people church? We gotta learn to be servants of Jesus, number one. And we'll talk more about that over the next few weeks. Number two, Paul, this is like social identity theory in the ancient world. Paul begins with saying, hey guys, before you are in Philippi, you are in first in Christ Jesus. He's essentially saying, the thing that defines you the most is not you being in Boise. The thing that defines you the most, Paul would say, is not you, man, coming from the, that part of the town. The thing that defines you the most is not, man, your previous history, right, your ethnicity. No, the thing that defines you the most, your, your primary identity is being in Christ. Being in Christ precedes everything else. In the ancient setting, um, you had a thing called primary identity. So if you were born uh, into your kin group, that kin group would tell you who you were. That was your primary identity. Ancients believed that your primary identity was fixed. You could have a religious experience. You could get Roman citizenship. But ultimately, who you were born into, what group you were born into, was your primary identity. And just like a leopard can't change its spots, right? Um, your primary identity, which was associated with your kin group, was absolutely fixed. Paul says something different. Hey, now he flips the script, and it's all because of the grace of Jesus. What he insists is that your primary identity, who you are, is not Republican or Democrat. It's not redhead or this. It's not this or that. It's not just some activity, right, that you, you experience in, in, in your everyday life. No, your primary identity is found in Christ. We've talked about this a lot. Paul is relocating the Christian out of Philippi and placing them first in Christ. This is who you are. Your life is intimately bound up in the life of Jesus, and everything else flows out of that. See, the problem is, I've seen it in the church. People get this, like, I hate to even say formula, let's call it sequence. We get this sequence out of order. We take a secondary identity, like I'm an American, or like I'm a Democrat, or I'm a Republican, and we put that first. And then we have in Christ as a secondary identity. If you're a follower of Jesus, the thing that defines you firstly is not 
the, uh, the color of your skin. It's not your profession. It's not who you even think you are. Your primary identity is being in Christ. It's being a Christian first. It's I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been baptized. I've been rescued. And I'm now part of a world that runs not on hate or violence, but on self-giving love. Self-giving love is my starting point as a follower of Jesus. And that's how I negotiate every other secondary identity, like Dallas Cowboy fan, like redhead, like I grew up and I had a temper, but God's still working on me. That temper is just an activity that describes me, but it's not my story, right? It's not my identity, right? I have a broken heart because of the Dallas Cowboys, but I can manage that brokenness because I'm not first in the Dallas Cowboys. I'm first a Christian. I'm in Christ before I'm a pastor. I'm in Christ before I'm a husband. I'm in Christ before I'm a dad. I'm in Christ before I'm an extraordinary athlete. I'm in Christ. You see, the problem is, and the reason why we have so much division in our world, even in churches, God forbid, is because we get this mixed up. We start with these secondary identities. Well, I'm in Boise, or I'm in this, or I'm in that. And we start there. And we assume, it's axiomatic in our world, we assume that if we start with a secondary identity, we can get into a primary identity, or we can negotiate all the division in our world. It will never happen. How do we become a Jesus for the people, church? We have to marginalize our political activity. We have to marginalize things and definitions and labels that have defined us previously. And we have to put ourselves and locate ourselves in Christ. And that's when you can truly be human. That's when you can be the dad that God has called you to be. That's how you can be the mom that God's called you to be. That's how you can be the politician that God's called you to be, or the athlete that God's called you to be. You are not first an athlete. It took me 20 years to deconstruct that in my mind. For 20 years, I lived by the logic of performance as an athlete. I played basketball for 18 years. I had to perform, 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 perform. It was etched like a permanent marker in my mind. And I assumed that my story was being an athlete and being an athlete was predicated on performing. And when I didn't perform well, I was devastated. It wasn't until I learned, no, 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 no. You've assumed that your secondary identity was a primary one, but your primary identity is you're a son of God and your father's well-pleased with you. So, do we handle the mess? How do we destroy these divisions that we see in our culture, maybe even in our own lives? We've got to start with Jesus. Can I get an amen? I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.